Keep your Bibles open there in Mark 4 and 5, but now I'm going to pray as we begin. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, uh, we pray that we would not be like so many of the people we read about in Mark's Gospel, uh, people who hear about Jesus or even see him in the flesh, uh, but have eyes but don't perceive and ears and they hear but they don't listen. Instead, give us listening ears tonight and eyes that do perceive and help us to see Jesus clearly and so worship him as we should. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I've been uh, enjoying looking at Mark's Gospel here at church each week this term and I don't know if that's obvious when I preach or not, whether I'm enjoying a book of the Bible, uh, but I'm loving sharing it with you. And one of my main goals in preaching always is to share my enthusiasm with you. Uh, That's my hope. Uh, My hope is, more than anything, I want you to love or grow in your love of God's Word. That's what I want. Uh, I want you to be excited by our Lord and excited by His Word. Uh, And I think Mark's Gospel is one of those parts of the Bible that just gets you excited, if you're willing to get excited, uh, because what we're doing is we're just meeting our Lord. That's what we're doing in Mark. There's no extra stuff. We're just meeting our Lord face-to-face on the pages of Mark's Gospel. And our Lord is amazing and He is exciting. And today's passage is a great one, I think. Uh, There's two great stories. There's the calming of the storm. First of all, if you're at our uh, morning congregations a few weeks back, we had that as our kids' spot, and uh, we got sprayed with water, and we all got to make woo-woo-woo noises and all that sort of stuff. And uh, I'm not going to do that for you tonight. I'm sorry about that. But so we've got that great story, and then we've got this crazy story of Jesus' battle not with a demon, but with a multitude of demons. Uh, You could not make a movie as good as this, could you? I think. As I was looking at it during the week, uh, I sort of thought of the perfect storm. Does anyone remember that movie? You know, where they go out in the boat, and I don't want to ruin ruin it for you, but no one comes back. Um, uh, And uh, so that's sort of the the first story. Uh, And then the second one, it really is a horror film. I don't know if you realise this, but nearly every horror film gets all its ideas from the Bible. So, uh, And it made me think of when I was 13... And my parents made the mistake of leaving me at home with my older brother. And he suggested we should watch this movie that was on TV that night called The Exorcist. (laughs) And at the age of 13, I was traumatised. And my mother didn't understand why for weeks to come I was saying, don't go out, don't go out, don't leave me at home. But anyway, that's the second story. Besides being ripping yarns though, uh, what I hope we will see and learn in both of these stories is that they have something in common, they have a common theme And that is they are both about revealing who Jesus is to people. That's what they're about. Uh, They're about coming to understand who Jesus is and then making us ask, do we believe it? And what does that mean for us? That's the common theme in these two stories. So let's get into the first story. Open up your Bibles. It's there at chapter 4, verses 35 to 41. It's a famous story. Jesus and his disciples get into a boat, or Jesus is already on the boat. He's been teaching from the boat, if you remember. But now they get on the boat with him and they travel across the Sea of Galilee. And we've got a map here. So it's about to come up. This is your map. Uh, Up there, down here is where Jerusalem is, and this is the Dead Sea. But up the top, that's the Jordan River up, and that's the Sea of Galilee. Sometimes it gets called the lake or the sea. It's one of those ones that's sort of in between. It's not... Too big to be a lake, too small to be a sea, that sort of thing. Anyway, they were at Capernaum, which is over where Galilee is there, and they were crossing the sea to get to this area called the Decapolis. So that's where we are on the map of the world of that time. 
But once they get out into the middle of the water, into the middle of this great body of water, a massive storm comes up. Uh, and it, I'm not great on boats. I, I get seasick. My problem is I love fishing, but I get seasick when I see water. So I, it's not a good mix. So I have to take double doses of travel calm whenever I go anywhere near a boat. I think I would have needed 10 times the dose here because it says the waves were up above the boat and they were crashing down on it and they were all being swamped and they were genuinely fearing that they were going to be drowned. But through it all, where was Jesus? Did you see that as we looked at it? Look at verse 38. Where was Jesus? He was in the stern sleeping on the cushion. My whole, I just cannot visualize this cushion. I've been struggling with this. It would have been sopping wet. And there's Jesus asleep on it. Just how he was managing to sleep through all of this, we do not know. Uh, I do wonder if this was an intentional test of the disciples. It's him sort of thinking, I will sleep here. And they are going, I'm going to see, have they worked it out yet? Have they worked out who I am? Because they've seen all these amazing miracles. They've been there from the very beginning. They've heard all my teaching. They've even heard the special explanation just for the insiders. Uh, They've been given the secret of the kingdom of God, Jesus has said. So do they understand it yet? Do they believe in me yet? But if it was a test, how did they do? They failed miserably. Because what do they do? They wake Jesus up. And instead of just sort of asking him for help, saying, Jesus, I don't know if you realize we're in a storm. Can Can you lend a hand? They're actually really, really rude to Jesus. They accuse him of not caring. Look at verse 38. It says, so they woke him up and said to him, teacher, Don't you care that we are going to die? I think we're generally really quick to forgive the disciples in the Gospels. Are you like that? As I read it, I'm sort of always amazed at their slowness sometimes, but I'm always quick to forgive them. I sort of think it's understandable. Uh, They're scared. When when you're scared, you say things in an unhelpful way. You, You do that. But even so, I think their reaction is understandable, but still not right. It's a bit like, I think, when we cry out to God in the face of our suffering. You know, when we go through times of real suffering and we say to God sometimes in a moment of weakness, God, God, why are you letting this happen to me? I don't deserve this. You shouldn't make this happen to me. And we say, don't you care, God? And when we say that, it's understandable. You know, it's entirely understandable, but it's still wrong. And it's still even sinful because it flows from a lack of faith. It flows from a lack of trust in God and his goodness. It shows that we doubt God's good character. It shows that we doubt that he's working for the eternal good of those who love him as he's promised us. But interestingly, as is often the case, Jesus doesn't answer their question. Have you ever noticed that about Jesus? How people ask him a question and Jesus says, I know you've asked me that question, but I'm going to answer this question. Have you ever noticed that? How he just does that over and over again. Well, here he doesn't answer it at all, except with actions. He doesn't say anything. He deals with their question by acting to save them. Much like God has answered our questions that I said before. You know, God answers us when we say, God, don't you care? God points us to his actions in history. He says, of course I care. Look at the cross. I sent my son to die for you. There's our answer. And here, Jesus doesn't speak. He just deals with the problem. Look at verse 39. He got up, rebuked the wind, said to the sea, silence, be still. 
the wind ceased and there was a great calm. I keep saying this as we look at Mark's gospel, but don't let familiarity with this story make you take this for granted. You know, this is in every children's Bible. If you've grown up through our kids' church here and through youth group and that sort of thing, you've heard this story maybe a thousand times. Don't let that familiarity mean you take it for granted. This is an amazing miracle. With a word, Jesus calms this force of nature. See, sometimes I think we downplay the healing miracles of Jesus and the like because we have modern medicine. So for us, they're not as amazing. For us, we sort of think, well, people get healed all the time. Uh, illness is not a matter of life and death for us like it was for them. Uh, modern man thinks he knows everything. We think we can control all the variables. But you see, we still know the destructive force of what we call nature, don't we? See, it's interesting. With all our modern science, every year, every two years, when a cyclone hits the Queensland coast, what can people do about it? Nothing. They get in their cars and they drive away and then they drive back a couple of days later to check out the damage and they hope their house is still standing. Or when a tsunami comes through, what can people do about it? The best we can do is come up with a warning system that doesn't work. You see, modern science doesn't have the answers to what we call nature. We're helpless in the face of floods and cyclones and tsunamis and storms. But Jesus is not helpless. That's what makes this so incredible. He speaks to the wind and the waves. I have this image of back when I was at school when a particularly stern headmaster spoke to a particularly unruly student. And at that point you just say, it's not me. Well, it was me actually, I shouldn't lie. And at that moment you just go, okay, I will be quiet. That's what nature is like in front of Jesus. Jesus just says, be quiet. And nature is quiet. Immediately the wind ceases and there is a great calm. And you can imagine the silence on the boat at this point. If you've ever been caught in a really bad storm, when the storm passes, there is this eerie silence. Have you ever been in that situation? Where it's sort of like, it's like, it's not just that there isn't any noise, there is an absence of anything when you're in the, in the middle of a big storm and it ends and it passes. But here it's more than that. There's the calm of nature, but there's silence as the disciples try to work out just what happened. And you can imagine it as Jesus turns to the disciples and says, look at verse 40, he says, Why are you fearful? Do you still have no faith? It's funny, in my experience of people reading Mark's Gospel, and I read it with a lot of people, because what we do with Christianity Explained, uh, people are really quick to excuse the disciples. People say, yeah, of course they were rude to Jesus, but that's what you do when you're fearful. But people are shocked by Jesus' response to the disciples here. Uh, people are shocked by the harshness of Jesus. People say, how can Jesus ask them, why are you afraid? Of course they're afraid. Wouldn't anyone be afraid? Would we be any different? But his point is, by now, you shouldn't be afraid. By now, you should believe who I am and so know what I'm going to do because you've seen the miracles. I've drawn you away from the crowds and I've taught you the secret of the kingdom of God. You should know who I am. That's what Jesus is saying to the disciples here. You should know who I am. 
You should believe in me. You should know you're safe with me. You shouldn't be afraid with me because you should believe that this is the Son of God standing here on this boat with you. But the thing is the disciples are a work in progress and they weren't ever really going to understand until after Jesus' death and resurrection, until after the day of Pentecost. But here now they hadn't got it yet. And so they're still just there going, we don't know what's going on. And the thing that you see there in verse 41, look there, is that if they were scared before by the wind and the waves, well now, now with everything calm, they're even more scared. Now they are terrified. It's funny, our English translations cannot capture this word, this, what it's saying here of how terrified they were. In the original language, what they did was they used three words in a row that literally, and this is not meant to be a joke, this is literally, it translates as, they were mega scaredy terrified. That is a literal translation of the Greek of this passage. They were mega scaredy terrified. We don't have a word for that. But that's literally what it says. And the question is, why? Why were they so terrified? It's because at this moment they were realising that the man on the boat with them is not just the wisest teacher they've ever heard. Do you notice how when they woke him up, they called him teacher? They're realising he's not just a teacher. He's not just a rabbi. And he's not even just a miracle worker. He's not even just a healer. And he's not even just the promised Messiah, the king descended from David. He's more than that. And so look at verse 41. It says, And they were terrified and asked one another, Who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. Who is this man? And of course, even if they were struggling to fully comprehend it, I think they knew really in the sort of recesses of their mind, they knew the answer. Who is this man? This man is God, the Son. Because they knew that only Yahweh, only the God of Israel, the God of the Old Testament, he alone can control the wind and the waves with a word. Like when he parted the Red Sea back in the book of Exodus so they could escape from Egypt. Only God could do what they had just seen Jesus do. And when you stand... In the presence of the holy God, you are terrified. At least sane people are. And of course, the question they ask is the question every person has to ask and answer. And that is, who then is Jesus? Because if he is the Son of God, then the only sane response is to believe in him and follow him and fear him. We don't often talk about fearing Jesus, but the beginning of wisdom is fearing the Lord. We fear Jesus. We're amazed at his love for us, but he is God. He is to be feared. He is to be treated with awe and respect. See, we don't just follow a wise teacher. We don't come along here to hear the words of wisdom. We come to hear the word of God because that is who we worship. That is who we follow, the incarnate Son of God. And the only right response to this passage is to fall to our knees and worship him. Well, if we move on into our second story, come with me. 
Uh, they sailed on and they reached the other side of the Sea of Galilee. We'll get our map back. And they came over to this region here that's called the Decapolis. Uh, and it's called the Decapolis. Why? Hey, you know your languages. There you go. Deca is ten and Polis is cities. There were ten cities in this region. They were sort of self-governing. But what was special about this region was it was a Gentile region. So before Jesus had been over here in Galilee and down here with John the Baptist down in Judea and that was Jewish areas. But over in the Decapolis there were some Jews there but it was mainly a Gentile area. How do we know it's a Gentile area just by reading Mark 5, 1 to 20? What's the thing that makes you think this is a bit weird? It's the fact there was a herd of pigs there. There are no pigs, herds of pigs hanging around Galilee and around Jerusalem because Jews thought pigs were unclean. So where there's a herd of pigs, it's because there are Gentiles. So that's where Jesus is now. He's over this side of the lake. And you have to feel for the disciples at this point because they've been scared out of their brains by the storm and then by Jesus and all that sort of thing. They step off the boat and they're sort of thinking, just give me a good lie down and a Panadol. You, you know, I, all I, want, I just never want to get on a boat again. And then what's the first thing that happens? A man infested with demons comes and confronts them. The minute they get on dry, they sort of think, I'll take my chances with the storm. And that's what I reckon I would have done, get back on the boat and say, Jesus, we're leaving you to it. But they don't. Now, I'll just pause at this point and say, we see some weird stuff here. I think Mark 5, 1 to 20 is one of the weirdest moments in the Gospels. Uh, But as we've seen repeatedly in Mark's Gospel, if you believe in Jesus, you believe in the devil and you believe in demons and you believe in angels as well. The devil is real. Uh, I'm going to say some outlandish things in the next five or ten minutes. Uh, There are such things as demonic forces. Uh, And if you don't believe in them, you don't believe in Jesus. You see, as much as we've tried to rationalise the modern world and make it have an answer for everything, we don't have answers for everything and there is a spiritual reality beyond our physical existence. So you get this horrible and sad description of this man in verses 2 to 5. Look at verses 2 to 5 there of chapter 5. He lived in these caves that were used as tombs on the shore of the lake. By the way, you can still find those caves and those tombs if you go there today you can go find where this happened but it seems he was there because he just couldn't live around normal people Uh, they'd sort of banished him out of the town Uh, they tried chaining him up not out of nastiness but just for his own protection and for their own safety Uh, but the demonic forces inside him gave him supernatural strength so he was able to break chains and crack through the shackles they put on his wrists and on his ankles. And it says no one was strong enough to subdue him. And so his life was horrible and tragic. Look at verse 5. It says, And always, night and day, he was crying out among the tombs and in the mountains and cutting himself with stones. It's a horrible picture, isn't it? Uh, I don't know if the self-mutilation was the demonic forces at work in him, sort of trying to get him to destroy himself uh, because that is the devil's great desire to destroy us and in particular to destroy the image of God in us. Uh, That's why the devil wants us to sin. 
because it's destructive behavior. It destroys us and destroys the image of God in us. It's funny, people think when they sin and give in to temptation, they say, oh, well, I'm just being human. Actually, no. When we sin, we're being subhuman. And that's what the devil wants for us. So it could be the demonic forces were actually trying to get him to hurt himself. Or it might be that the man was actually trying to destroy himself. That, that the demonic forces inside him were so awful that he was trying to harm himself to sort of rid himself of them. Whatever it was, when he saw Jesus, it says at verse 6, he ran and knelt before him. I find that strange because why would a demon go and kneel before Jesus? I, I wonder if this was sort of the man himself thinking, I want to kneel before Jesus. It's sort of like a, a battle between the demons and the man. Or maybe it's the demons sort of mocking Jesus, like the soldiers who worship him before his crucifixion. But then it's the demon that cries out. Look at verse 7. And he cried out with a loud voice, what do, you do with, what do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? I beg you before God, don't torment me. Do you notice the irony, by the way? Uh, what have the disciples just asked? Who is this man? Who answers them? A demon. They've seen all the miracles. They can't recognize. The demons recognize Jesus for who he is. They know that he is the son of the most high God. And the demon knows that Jesus has come to destroy them, to torment them. We always have to remember the cosmic spiritual dimension of what was going on with Jesus. In his death and resurrection, we often say Jesus was defeating sin. And that's exactly right. He was paying the price for the sin of humanity. He was winning us forgiveness. We also say he was destroying death. So he's defeating sin. He was destroying death. He's giving us the certain hope of eternal life. But he was also defeating the devil. There, there was spiritual warfare going on. Once and for all, Jesus was defeating Satan and the demons so that we need not fear evil any longer. And so the demon here knows that he is helpless before the Son of God. And so he begs that he not be tormented, that he not be destroyed. And so Jesus asks the unclean spirit for his name. And at this point, we start to get an even more vivid picture of just how horrible this man's situation was. Because look what the demon says in verse 9. He says, my name is Legion, because we are many. Just to understand that, a legion of Roman soldiers was 6,000 men. And the point here is that this was like an infestation of demonic activity in this poor man. We don't really know why, if you look there at verse 10, why they begged Jesus not to send them out of the region. Uh, some people come up with theories that demons have specific areas that Satan has given them responsibility for. Uh, I wonder if perhaps this, it's more, this was just a fertile area for them. Unlike over in the other side where, where there was Jewish religion, here there was pagan religions and, and the occult and all that sort of stuff going on. So I wonder if that's why they wanted to stay in this region because it was just a more fertile ground for, for them. Uh, but whatever it was, they want to stay there. But in any event, and this is where it gets sort of funny out of the tragedy, there was this herd of 2,000 pigs. It's a strange moment in the story as we were reading it. Did you sort of have a little laugh? You say, hey, what are the pigs doing here? 
2,000 pigs hanging around. And they say, Jesus, let us go into the pigs. Which seems weird to me, but it, it seems like they needed a living host. And perhaps they thought if we go into the pigs, we'll then be able to find some other people around to infest. But their plan backfired, and this is one of those comical moments in the Bible, uh, because the minute they entered the pigs, all 2,000 of them charged down the hill off a cliff like lemmings and into the Sea of Galilee and drowned. I said it was a weird story, didn't I, when I started. Uh, But this is just so far out of our experience, isn't it? This is just so out of our experience. I've said this a couple of times through this series in Mark. Talk about Satan and demons makes us uncomfortable, doesn't it? Uh, They're not part of our comfortable, rational world. We're, We're okay with talk of sin and salvation, but talk of devil and demons and spiritual warfare makes us sort of think, people think we're a bit crazy. But I've said before, yes, some Christians make too much of demons and we mustn't do that. Many Christians, sadly today, forget Jesus has defeated Satan once and for all in his death and resurrection. And they also forget that the devil's tricks for most of us are very, very normal. The devil today knows he doesn't have to bother with spinning heads and crazy things like that. He doesn't need to do that because we're just susceptible to much, much more normal temptations like greed and lust and busyness and just letting life getting in the way of following Jesus. See, he doesn't need to bother with that sort of stuff because, in fact, he knows that if people just stop believing in him, well, then very quickly they'll stop believing in Jesus and God as well. See, that's the devil's great trick for us. He doesn't bother with the exorcist sort of stuff. He just says, don't believe in me. Just get caught up in this rational world with all its answers because if you don't believe in the devil, you'll stop believing in Jesus as well. But even so, I just want to give a word of warning at this point. Don't ever forget that the devil and demonic forces are real. Uh, And we need to hear the warning. Do not mess around with the occult and witchcraft. I am amazed. I'm not talking about fiction here. I'm not talking about reading Narnia or The Wizard of Oz or Harry Potter or whatever. Uh, I'm amazed by how many Christians jokingly read horoscopes. If you read them to make fun of them, then by all means, because that's all they're worthy of. And Christians who go to shops in Katoomba and buy a crystal or go to a New Age festival uh, or watch Looking Beyond or things like this and, and, and talk about seances and wicker and Ouija boards and all and the spiritual aspects of yoga. You, you see, 99.9% of that stuff is just rubbish designed to part fools from their money. That's what 99.9% of it is. But there is 0.1% that is real and demonic. We mustn't mess around with it. It's dangerous. But having given that little warning, I want us to go back to the story because it doesn't end with the drowning of the pigs. And what we see at the end is two very different reactions to Jesus. The first is there are just most of the people in the area. Word got around very quickly about what had happened and people came from all around to see and what they saw was this man who had lived in the tombs, this man who they'd driven out of town, who they'd tried to chain up, sitting there, dressed and rational and in his right mind. And you would think they would say, how has this happened? 
Jesus, tell us more. You'd expect something positive, wouldn't you? But what does it say there? It says they were worried about the loss of the pigs. And they were afraid. And it says in verse 17, they began to beg him to leave their region. Now part of it I think was they were actually angry about losing 2,000 pigs. I think that was part of it. But I think it's more than that. I think like many people, they would rather stay in the sin and the brokenness and worldliness they know than consider the claims of this strange man who is suddenly amongst them, Jesus. It's amazing how people would rather the status quo than consider the claims of Christ. And it makes me think of so many people I know who are living broken lives, who are living lives without hope, you know, messing around with broken relationships and messing around chasing pleasure and never finding it and looking for fulfilment in their work and in relationships and in travel and in drink but never finding it. But then you say, can I tell you about Jesus? He might have some answers to what you're looking for and they don't want to hear. And even worse, when their friend becomes a Christian and they see their friend and his or her life actually improves, you know, they stop getting drunk. They sort out their relationships. They, they become a more honest and hard-working employee. They, they become a better husband or wife or son or daughter or whatever it is they are. They become generous with others. Have you ever noticed how often non-Christians will then say, oh, what happened to that old friend I know? Look what, look what coming to know Jesus does. Look at what Jesus has done to him. When blind Freddie could tell you, your friend is a better person now. It's amazing what Jesus has done for your friend. But you see, sin is so deceptive like that, they'd rather delude themselves that their life has meaning and potential. They'd rather that than consider Christ and his claims and what he has to offer. And I think that's what this reaction was, and sadly it's all too common. But then there's another reaction, and that's the reaction of the man himself. Look there at verse 18. It says, As Jesus was getting into the boat... The man who had been demon-possessed kept begging him to be with him. I I love that verse. Because this man has experienced the power and the grace of Jesus. He knows, I owe Jesus my life. And so he says, I just want to be with Jesus. That's all I want. I just want to be where Jesus is. I want to follow you. I want to be your disciple. And really, why I love that verse is, that is conversion. That's what becoming a Christian looks like. When we come to know Jesus and find salvation in him, we want to be his disciple. It's not an obligation. It's just a joy. My hope for this series in Mark is if if it has become an obligation for you, if following Christ has become an obligation for you, I just want you to rediscover that joy that this man has as you meet Jesus again. When we know Jesus and his salvation, we want to follow him. We want to learn from him through his word. See, being a disciple of Jesus, living for Jesus, listening to his word, it's not an obligation. It's something we just want to do if we've experienced his salvation. Isn't that right? But again, Jesus' response isn't what we'd expect. Look at verse 19. It says, but he would not let him. What sort of a religious saviour says, you want to be my disciple, but I'm not going to let you be? Jesus does, that's who. He says, you can't come with me. And then it says, instead he told him, go back home to your own people 
and report to them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Have you noticed already in Mark uh, that in the Jewish areas, when Jesus does something for someone, he heals them from blindness or, or sickness or whatever it is, he forbids them from talking about him. Have you noticed that? It's really strange, isn't it? You'd think, go and tell everyone. But Jesus says, no, no, don't tell anyone when he's in the Jewish areas. And I think that's because Jesus didn't want to cause a political uprising. He knew, I've come to be rejected. I've come to die for people's sins. I don't want them jumping the gun and trying to install me as the king of of Jerusalem or the king of Israel. So that's why he was constantly telling the Jews not to tell other people, though often they ignored him. Do you notice that as well? Often people just can't give it in and go, I know you said it, but anyway, I'm going to tell everyone. Uh, See, the time for telling would come, but only after Jesus had done the business only after his death and resurrection. But here in this Gentile area, that wasn't a problem. See, they weren't expecting a Messiah. They weren't worried about a political king. So to this man, he says, go back and tell anyone you want to tell. Tell them about God. Tell them about me. Tell them about what I've done for you and what I can do for them. And that's what he did. Look at verse 20. So he went out and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And they were all amazed. And the thing is, he did a really, really good job. Because when Jesus comes back this way, and we'll see it in a few weeks, in a few chapters' time, the people didn't reject him then. By that time, it seems they'd got over the pigs or something. But that time, they flocked to him, and they listened to him, and many of them followed him. But I want to close at this point, because really, this guy is just a wonderful example for us. Because this is the call Jesus makes on all of us. Like this man, we have experienced Jesus' mercy. That's what's happened to us. If we've come to trust in him and his death and resurrection for our salvation, if that's us, then we have a story to tell. So Jesus says, well, go to your people and tell the story. I don't know who your people are, but go tell your family. Go tell your friends, go tell your colleagues and tell them what I've done for you. Tell them about the mercy I have shown you. Some people overcomplicate evangelism and think, oh, but I don't know how to explain it in six easy steps and I I don't know that I'd be able to answer people's questions. You don't have to have all the answers. If you know Jesus and you have experienced his mercy, then just tell other people about it. You have a story to tell, if that's you. And some will reject it, some won't be interested, but some will be amazed. And some will say, tell me more, introduce me to this Jesus who you've come to know. That is what a disciple of Jesus does. They just go and tell people about the mercy they have received from their wonderful Saviour. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father... We thank you for these wonderful stories about our amazing Lord. And we thank you that he could control nature with a word. And we thank you that he could defeat the devil and cast out the demons. And Father, we know that he is your son. Come to save us. And so Father, help us to fear him. And help us to worship him. And help us to live for him. And most of all, help us to share our story with others the story of how Jesus has shown us mercy. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.